Morning, Four Oaks. We don't know each other. I'm Paul Gilbert. I'm the lead pastor. So glad that, that you are here. I can see the rain delay has impacted attendance. And so if you're at home right now in Tallahassee streaming this live on Facebook, I'm looking at you. Okay, no, it's just kidding. Just kidding. It's for the infirm, the sick, the out of town. But anyway, we're, the righteous remnant, we're glad you're here. Turn to John chapter 11 making our way through the gospel of, of John. I don't know if you heard the, the news. It was sometime last year, late last year, when it was announced that the greatest show on earth, the Barnum and Bailey Circus, was, was no more. They're putting a fork in it. It's done after 147 years as a show. Um, introduced the vernacular of the circus, which was kind of our, part of our cultural lexicon. Interestingly enough, last night, uh, the Gilbert fam, we decided to break out The Greatest Showman, which is kind of a, a musical, and it shows Hugh Jackman singing, and he's not the Wolverine, but he's singing, he's doing all kinds of, of cool things. And it's about the story of P.T. Barnum, founder of the Modern Day Circus. And, but what, what, what we learned last night, actually for the day, it was quite controversial. P.T. Barnum, by many, was considered a shyster, a hustler, a con man. There were accusations that he was just sort of dealing in illusions and mirrors and nothing was really real or nothing was as it appeared. And as we get to this point in the ministry of Jesus, the exact same equation and dynamic is at work except in reverse. And here's what I mean. All through the gospel of John as we've made our way and we've seen Jesus do amazing things. He's, He's healed blind men. Uh, he's paralytics who have been paralyzed for 38 years, turning water into wine and, and a host of other things. But not once, not once, and, and really this is true for most of the other stories in the Gospels, is it really ever doubted that Jesus did what he did. There, there, there's really no dispute, mainly on the whole, about whether Jesus fed that 5,000 or whether Jesus healed that man, or it was so blatantly obvious to everyone that was involved who witnessed it. But yet what they did argue about is what these signs actually meant. What what, what did these miracles say about who Jesus was? That was the point of real controversy. And as we've seen in the Gospel of John, some said he's clearly a prophet he, he's working it like Elijah, like, like Moses. Surely he's, he's, he's from God in some way. Others said, no, 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 he's, he's demon-possessed. He's casting out demons by the power of, of Beelzebub. Others just, maybe, maybe he is the Christ. There was, there was all sorts of, of perspectives and opinions. But we come today to what is undoubtedly the greatest of all miracles that Jesus does in his ministry outside of his own resurrection. And this, of course, is a story most of you are very familiar with, the story of Lazarus and Jesus raising him from the dead. Now, it should be noted that some people call the Gospel of John the book of signs or the book of miracles because John punctuates his entire gospel with these strategically located miracles that he calls signs. And the reason he calls them signs is because never, never does Jesus do simply a miracle for the sake of doing a miracle or do a healing for the sake of doing a healing or show his power for the sake of showing his power. They're always a sign that point to something else. 
that point to a truth about God or, most importantly, a truth about himself. And here we have in the Gospel of John the seventh sign. John has saved the best for the last. This, by the way, is the last public miracle that Jesus performs in this life, in his ministry. This last public miracle, and it's, it's, it's important, it leaves a lasting impression. It leaves no shadow of a doubt to those who witness it who exactly Jesus is and who he claims to be, and that's its purpose for us, that we would be confronted anew, again, with who Jesus claims to be, and most importantly, who we are in relationship to him. So who do you say that he is? I'm going to invite you to stand, and it's kind of a lengthy passage, but I think we can get our blood pumping here, get the Word of God flowing through the veins, right, Matt? I think we can do that. So we're going to read from John 11, 17 through 44. It's just a pretty clear passage. It's a great passage. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. So Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he had been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come 
out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Lord, we, let's, to be honest, we just so identify with, with Mary and Martha in this passage. Lord, I, I'm looking around. I, most of us I know know Jesus. We believe in the resurrection. We know, Jesus, you're coming back. We know you're going to raise us from the dead and our loved ones. But, Lord, we're just like Mary. We're just like Martha. We're just like, but Jesus, why did you delay? Why didn't you come? Why didn't you heal that disease or fix that marriage or restore that relationship or bring that prodigal back home? Lord, we, we identify with these women deeply. Father, I pray. You identify with them deeply. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would peel the scales back from our eyes, that we could see you for who you truly are, that we could understand better what it means for you to love us and what it is that we need the most. So, Heavenly Father, we ask for your help. We need, we need, your, we need you to, to illuminate our hearts and minds, Holy Spirit. So come, give us wisdom, give us your truth. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. Let's go ahead and get the punchline right out on the table. First things first. Let's don't mess around. Let me, let me get to the conclusion. And you're saying, wow, this will be great. Two-minute sermon. Awesome. Not so fast, my friend. The, but here's the central truth. Here's the thing that Jesus wants to most reveal about himself through this miracle and what he wants you to do with that miracle. Verses 25 and 26. Let me read it again. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, for John, writing this to us, he does not consider us to be merely bystanders, that we're, we're, we're people under the big top watching the show go on down below, applauding or clapping or booing or, or approving or, distant or, or, or disapproving. We're not to remain a distant, abstract entity to this story. Um, we, we are not to, 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 to remain sort of... Um, I, what's the word I'm looking for? Distant or obtuse to what's happening? No, 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 no. Jesus invites us in just as he does Martha to consider this all important reality. Do you believe this? That's the question for you. That's the question for me. And we must consider what Jesus is claiming and what this means for us. And so we're going to break this story down into three parts, and we're thankful that John thought to alliterate this for us 2,000 years ago in English, nonetheless. So this is, this is to help you. So here are three, three points, okay? We're going to look at the reality of the situation. We're going to look at the resurrection. And finally, we're going to look at the reason. The reality, the resurrection, and the reason. Now, it's obvious from this text that these are no mere strangers or acquaintances for Jesus. The, these are BFFs. These, these are his people. 
Martha, Mary, Lazarus, they are siblings. It's clear they had a long-standing relationship with Jesus. When we piece together other information in the Gospels, it seems clear that this family was a well-heeled family. They were, they, were, they were well-connected. They were very wealthy. They were probably benefactors of Jesus. And every time Jesus and his disciples traveled to Jerusalem, they probably stayed in this bedroom community with Lazarus and Mary and Martha and made their journey to and fro. We know they're probably a, a very wealthy family. We, we're going to find out in a couple of weeks from John chapter 12 that Mary has this incredibly expensive ointment and perfume that she ends up using on the feet of Jesus. And this would have been an extravagance not known in that day for the common folks. We also know that they were very close to Jerusalem. Bethany is about 1.8 miles from Jerusalem. And it would have been the custom because they were well-connected in society for all these people to come out and, and to console them and mourn with them. Um, this was a crowd that not many villagers would have experienced like this family did. And so clearly, there's a lot going on here. Now, remember in chapter 10, we, we saw that when Jesus healed the man who had been born blind and the Jews picked up stones to stone him, that Jesus retreated across the Jordan River to where John the Baptist had originally been ministering. And he, he does that because the Jews are seeking to kill him. His time has not yet come, and, and he wants to sort of stay put. But while he's there, they get word that his dear friend, Lazarus, whom it's, it's very clear Jesus loved Lazarus, Jesus loved Mary, Jesus loved Martha. You see this mentioned over and over in this text. They hear that Lazarus has died, and Jesus says, we're going back to pay our wishes and respects to the family. And the disciples, as we saw last week, are basically saying, you have lost your mind. <laughs> Thomas is like, you're going to go up, and you're going to die, and we're going to die with you. I can't believe, Jesus, you're going back into the teeth of the lion. Remember, Bethany was right off the main road from Jericho to Jerusalem. This was no obscure little village out of the way, podunk town. No, no, this was on the main thoroughfare. Everybody would know. Everybody would see. And as we're going to see next week, we're also going to see... <clears throat> that this is very intentional on Jesus' part because this healing is the last straw. It is at this point that not only is there a, a wish to see Jesus dead, there is actually a plan enacted. Jesus is dead 10 days after this miracle. The leader said, we've seen enough. He's too popular. Remember, they didn't dispute. They didn't dispute that it happened. They just differed on what it meant and who Jesus was. But verse 17 tells us that Lazarus has been dead four days. And I think this is an intentional part that John is mentioning, us to, uh, mentioning this to us. Because for one, you, and not, I'm, I'm going to get a little morbid here just for a second, but the Jews did not embalm. They were not like the Egyptians. They're not like, they're not like us in the West. They didn't embalm. Medically, we know that the processes that shall we say, engage the body as it expires. Is that, is that pleasant enough? Okay, as it decays, are very intense versus those, 70, those first 72 hours. I tried to get a heads up on this with Dr. Curio in the first service, and he started to go into such detail that I was like, thank you, I'm out of here. That's enough of that. So they had to bury them immediately. They had to pour on the spices because it was going to stink if they didn't. In fact, look at verse 39. 
Martha's like, Jesus, are you crazy? Are you going to ro- really want us to roll the stone back? There's going to be an odor. Now, in the King James, you know what it says? He will stinketh, okay? And so parents, try that one on your teenage boy. You stinketh, okay? Go, go shower up. Take your one shower of the, of the week. Go, go, go do that thing. What's the point here? What's the point? The point is, is that Lazarus is super dead. <laughs> I mean, there's no disputing that. There might be other miracles, you know, where Jesus is raising the daughter of Jairus and others where we could say, well, she was in a swoon and she wasn't really dead. And she, no, no, no. Everybody is in perfect agreement that Lazarus was dead. We know this also, we're going to get to this point in John, where the, where the Jews are not just plotting to kill Jesus. Who are they plotting to kill again? Lazarus. Poor guy. How many times can a guy die? Okay, so they're, they're plotting to kill him. John's whole point is to communicate that these are the facts and they are not in dispute. There can be no doubt. And John paints a picture for us where Jesus is coming in right into the middle of this cauldron of grief and despair. A Jewish funeral at the time would have been something we are very, probably very unfamiliar with and very uncomfortable. First of all, there was seven days of intense mourning. And when I say intense mourning, I mean wailing, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Families were expected to hire a professional wailer. Can you imagine one of those? Okay. A prof- someone who would cry out and lead all the other people in wailing. And, and th- they would hire a couple of musicians who would play the dirges on the flutes and And they were to lead the rest of the family and friends into this intense seven days of mourning. But not only that, after those seven intense days were done, there would be just kind of a normative 30 days of grief and sorrow where people would mourn and they were emotional. And and let me just say something before we dive a little more into that. This is not the point of the text, but I think it's important for me to note anyway. For a lot of us, that seems really strange. That seems really strange. This does not compute because in our culture, we have very, very tidy funerals, do we not? Someone dies, we take them away, they are embalmed, there is a viewing, there is a burial, and we are all done. Wrap it up. Thank you very much. I don't want to think about this anymore. Okay, that's the West's way of dealing with death. That is not, that's not the history of the world, typically. It's interesting, I was online this is what pastors do in their spare time. I was online, and, and there, there was this website that's devoted to displaying photographs of, of families with deceased children from 100, 200 years back. And this is going to, again, sound morbid, but it just kind of gives you a perspective that when children would die at an early age, they would be photographed with the rest of the family who was alive. And this was because death was such an imminent part of their lives and culture. It's something they couldn't escape from. It's something they couldn't deny. It's something that they, 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 they had to embrace on a daily basis. Remember when, when, when grandmama would die in the days when they would have the wake, which means the body was where? Upstairs in the bedroom. And everybody's downstairs eating casserole dishes and stuff. And so we think about that sort of thing, and it just kind of freaks us out. But we need to understand something. See, the way we deal with death and sorrow and grief, I'm convinced, I'm convinced, 
oftentimes leaves us more traumatized after the event than during. It's because we don't know how to mourn. We don't know how to grieve. We don't know how to tell the truth about ourselves and about our lives and who we are and our mortality, which really short-circuits us from the grace of God for who Jesus wants to reveal himself to be in this passage. I, I find it fascinating that when you look at the amount of, of verses that Jesus spends on the resurrection here in this text, it's about that many. That's about three, about three or four verses. He spends about 30 on the whole scene. I mean, he, just look at the text. You have, you have verse 21, Mary is, Martha is weeping. Verse 33, Mary is weeping, throwing herself at Jesus' feet. You have all these wailers, these mourners. See, I think this is intentional. See, I think John is wanting to paint a picture for us of the devastating reality of sin. That, that sin and death have ruined the human race. Sin and death have ruined all of us. Jesus is, is, is contemplating this scene. John is, and by the way, this scene just, it just oozes eyewitness testimony. You can tell John is there. He's recording every detail. And I think he does, he spends so much time in this because he wants us to marinate, to sit in the reality of what sin and death has done in this world, how it's impacted us and our relationships and our governmental structures and our institutions and our marriages and, and, our, and our parenting. He just wants us, he's, in, he, he's, he's wanting us to live there just for a moment. Look back at the text, verse 21. There's Martha, and guys, can't you just so identify with Martha and Mary in this? Martha clearly believes in the resurrection. She said, no, I, know, I know Jesus, I know about the resurrection, I know what's going to happen, but where were you? Why weren't you here? If you had shown up, we wouldn't be in this predicament. Can you identify today? Where's that place where maybe you're asking yourself the very same question? Jesus, if you had just shown up in this time, in this way, I still have my job. I still have my marriage. I still have my health. I still fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. I think we can identify what I, what's even more amazing is the humanity on display for Jesus. See, a lot of times we will say things like, well, you know, because Christians believe in the resurrection, because we know, in this typical, he's in a better place. She's in a better place. Christians don't need to mourn. I mean, we, come on, we're, we're, we're resurrection people. No, 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 no. I think of all people, we should be the ones who do mourn because we know how to mourn correctly. What does Matthew 5, 4 say? Blessed are those who what? Mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, we as believers know better than anyone the reality and pain of what sin brings into the world. And it says Jesus wept. And he is right there in the midst of humanity. And you will not believe the things the different commentators and other pastors try to just kind of get this, get this human aspect of what Jesus is doing out of, the, out of the equation, but we can't. 
In fact, look at verses 33 and 38. Not only is Jesus grief-stricken, it says in verse 33 and 38, I don't know what your, your translation says, deeply disturbed, deeply moved. You know, the, the, the original word, the word, the Greek word underneath that is used to describe the turbulence and tumult of waves, of rapids in a river or a waterfall or in an ocean. If you've ever seen a, a waterfall, the water come down, the waters become very agitated and stirred up. And it says that Jesus, in a sense, is deeply troubled. He's deeply moved. He's agitated. He's in inner turmoil. In other words, he's not just experiencing grief, which he is. He's not just identifying as a fellow human being to the suffering that's going on, but in fact, he's experiencing, in a word, anger. See, the, the word literally means to snort like a horse. <laughs> there's, there's, this, there's this idea that Jesus has this building outrage that's pouring out into emotion as he surveys the landscape. And sees the wreckage and the carnage of what sin has done. And there's part of him that's echoing, this is not the way things ought to be. Because the closest I can ever remember to feeling something remotely like that, as some of you, many of you I know can identify with this, was at my mom's funeral a few years ago. And, and those of you who know me, you know I'm not a weepy type, Okay unless I'm watching a Disney movie or something like that. I'm not a weepy type. I don't have a lot of uncontrolled emotion or weeping, but I remember there was a point at the end of the service, and, and Pastor Josh was there playing a particular song, and I just kind of found, found myself just kind of letting loose, just kind of crying and not being able to stop. And as I thought about what, in, in the moment, you're like, what's, what's going on inside? I mean, of course, there was a part of me that was missing my mom, that was mourning her death, absolutely. But there was something even deeper than that. There was this idea of, God, this is not right. God, look at this. We were not created to die. We were created to, be, to worship you, to be in perfect communion. Look what sin has done. God, please show up and make what is wrong right. Can you, can you, have you ever resonated with that? That this is not the way things are supposed to be? See, I think Jesus is responding not just to the loss of Lazarus and, the, and his family and the people there, but in fact the totality of the brokenness of humanity. I want you to think about something. I want you to think about what sin has done to, to creation. Colossians 1 tells us, who created the world? Jesus. Jesus was the agent of creation. And here he comes upon this accident, this scene, and looks at the devastating impact of sin and our rebellion against God and what it has done. But here's the difference, and here's the difference in his indignation and mine, or his indignation and yours, or his or his grief and mourning and our grief and mourning, and it's simply this. Church, he is in position to do something about it as, versus us who can do nothing about it. 
See, his grief, and see, oftentimes when we grieve and oftentimes we're stricken and we're mourning, we're, we're immobilized, we're passive, we're, we're, we feel helpless, we can't control the situation. But it's the exact opposite with Jesus. Jesus is ignited to action. He is mobilized. He is like Herman Ritterboss talks about in verse 38. It's like he's entering the ring to do battle against the great enemy death. He, he is there to settle the score. In fact, here's a great quote from him. He strides to the tomb as the one sent into the world by the Father, as the advocate who has entered human flesh and blood. Which brings us to our second point, the resurrection. Look at verse 43. Verse 43, Jesus says, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The verb is, is literally a command of raw authority. Parents, you know this command, right? Get in here. Get in the car. Take your shot. Sh- whatever it is, right? It's, it's when you speak, something happens, or it kind of happens, and you wish it happened quicker, right? Okay. It, it, it's the word used when commanders, when kings give, a, give an order or a decree where people have no choice but to obey. Now, as I was kind of pondering this, and this Jesus just with this, I mean, again, literally, come here, Lazarus. Lazarus, get. That's what we say in Tennessee. Lazarus, here. Hey, that, that's literally what he's saying. And it's interesting. I saw something in this text that I've never seen before, and it's not new. It's not novel. It's not a new truth. Let me be really careful. It's just something I had never seen before. And, and be- but before I tell you what it is, I, I just want to encourage you with something, church. God's word never ceases to supply its endless riches ever. I believe because the word of God endures forever, this applies to eternity as well. If God is eternal and he has eternal attributes, it's going to take an eternity, quote unquote, to unpack all that he is, which which, which, which means I think for this life, you may have been studying the Word of God for 50 years, four decades, five decades. And it's amazing how the Holy Spirit will just show up and say, I'm going to put my finger right on something you've never seen before. I, I'm going to show you this truth in a new way. I'm going to show you how it applies to your heart. I'm going to show you how it applies to your life. And this is my sneaky way for the infomercial of men sign up for that men's weekend. That's all I've got to say for that. But here, here's what I saw in this. I thought about 1 Thessalonians 4 when it talks about what's going to happen when Jesus returns one day. Let's listen. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with what? A cry of command. With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Now, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Do you get that? One day, Jesus is going to come back, and with a cry of command, every single person in the history of the world will rise with a word, just with a word. Commentators have have noted here, and I don't don't know if this is true or not, but it preaches, so I'm going to say it anyway, all right? But they notice that Jesus specifies who is to rise here. Just one man, just one man, Lazarus. Lest 
all of creation come out of their tombs simply by a command. That's how powerful, folks, the Word of God is because the Word of God that made Lazarus alive is the same one that made you alive in Christ. You were dead in your sins. I was dead in my sins. Could not perceive, hear, enter the kingdom of God. But God spoke. What's amazing about this passage, and and John Piper makes this point, is that as awesome as this is, it's not the ultimate thing. See, this is just the trailer. This is just the preview to the great movie that's going to be shown at the end of time. It's just a taste. It's just a foreshadowing. It's to remind us, I've got the power over sin and death, and one day I'm coming to make it all right. Now, that brings us to verse 25 and 26, which I said was the central two verses of this passage, and we want to make sure we unpack them and then specifically apply them to ourselves. So let's go back to verses 25 and 26. Very familiar passage. You probably memorized it when you were young. I am the resurrection and the life. I think these verses say two things about one thing. Does that make sense? In other words, there's one truth here expressed in sort of two different ways. Okay? Now, the first one I think you're, you'll be most familiar with, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I think it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward here that one day, you and I will be raised and given new resurrection bodies. See, now, what, what happened to Lazarus, he did not get a new resurrection body, okay? He, he was just simply restored to his former state of good health. Church tradition, in fact, tells us that Lazarus most likely lived another 30 years or so. But Jesus says, one day, I'm coming back to give you a new body, that is incorruptible, that's the same, but kind of not. Do you notice that in Jesus' ministry when he rises from the grave? He's going about, and, and, and it, it's kind of like him, but you can't, people can't recognize him. It's like, it's like a, in seed format. It's like it's, it's you know, it, it's him, but is it him? But as they interact and engage and talk and he eats and drinks with them, you realize this is, this is the risen Christ. That is what it's going to be like for all. Now, John MacArthur makes this point. Everyone gets a resurrection body suited for their eternal destiny, whether that's be heaven or hell. That's another sermon. But one of the things I love to tell people at funerals is to say, you know, look at your mom, look at your dad, your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter. You've got to remember that's not them because they are not dead. They are with the Lord. They were not separated through death for one millisecond from the love of Jesus Christ. There there was a seamless transition from physical death to spiritual life with Jesus. That's the first thing I think he's saying. Go back to verse 26. Here's the second thing, or, or he says that same thing in a different way. This one's harder for us. Let me just give you, this is harder because we get the first part. This is the harder part, 26. And everyone who lives and believes in me 
shall never die. Why don't you think about that for a second? Because we look around at the fabric of our lives and our relationships and people and we say, well, I don't know what's going on this because this sure feels like death. (laughs) Death of loved ones, death of relationships, death of dreams, death of of hopes and visions. What does this mean, Pastor Paul? I will never die. How, what does that mean? How can that be? I think there's a clue here in what Jesus says about himself. Notice when he talks about being the resurrection, what tense this verb is in. He doesn't say, I will be the resurrection and the life, although that's totally true. See, that's the part we get. You know, I'm the, I'm the resurrection and the life. That's for funerals. That's for when I'm on my deathbed. That's for the hope given to people once I'm gone. I, I, I get the I will, but that's not what Jesus says here. See, he says, I am right now. See, this is going to be important for the disciples because in 10 days, Jesus is gone. He is killed. And they're, and they're going to be encouraged, I think, by the Holy Spirit to think back to this time, 10 days prior, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead as a precursor to his own resurrection. See, I, I think resurrection theology for most of us is just this distant thing. It's the pie in the sky and the sweet by and by. When in reality, resurrection theology is relevant right here, right now, for you and for me. It's, a, it's, a, it's not an abstract theological doctrine. See, the res- I, I'm convinced what Jesus is saying is that the resurrection is a reality and a truth to be experienced now, known and lived out, to give us hope in a future now. See, when we have a resurrection theology, we, you know, risking for the kingdom, man, that's something we might be empowered to do. If we believe in resurrection theology, this transforms the way we think about our decisions and where we're putting our hope. You know, one of the things I told first service, and I'll say it again, Everyone in this room, everyone on planet Earth is looking for life somewhere. We're looking for life somewhere. We're looking for it in a marriage. We're looking for it in a relationship. Maybe we're living vicariously through our our children. We're looking for life in a job, in a future reality of retirement. We're looking for, for life in a bank account or travel experiences or, I mean, fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. All of us are looking for life in some place. And here's the problem. None of those things were ever designed to give it. All of those things are fading. All of those things are wasting away. Because Jesus says, me, me. Only I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? Which brings us to our last point. We'll do this one quickly and we're done. The reason. The reason. Let me give you the, the, the punchline from last week's message by Pastor Scott, which, is, which was right on, was so good, where he talked about what does it mean for God to really love us? 
and that because he loved Lazarus and her family, Jesus delayed in going to heal him and instead let him die. And, 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 and he talked about how hard that is for us as humans to understand how in the world is that love. And we know part of that answer is just wrapped up in the idea that Lazarus had to die so that he would be raised, so that people would testify and see that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, so that the glory of Christ would be displayed. Well, let me build on that just for a second as we, as we wind this down. I think what Jesus is really wanting to communicate, really the fundamental reason behind the healing of Lazarus is to communicate to us that healing is not the ultimate goal in this passage. Let me say, and this is a hard one for us, healing is not the ultimate goal in this life. Seeing, tasting, experiencing Jesus as the resurrection and the life, that's the goal. That's the purpose. As you've heard us talk many times about our sister Deborah Pacetti. And um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, I'll just briefly bring you up to speed. About five years ago, Deborah was um, diagnosed with stage four cancer that was in her liver and other places. And for those of you who know anything about stage four and liver, and you just know that's, that's not good news. That's, that, that can be the equivalent of a death sentence. And we watched many of you over time made this journey with Deborah as God miraculously extended her life, how cancer receded and there was recovery and health and to watch Deborah with her amazing testimony and suffering with dignity and grace. And I remember at some point a couple years ago, Deborah said, you know, I believe that God has chosen to, done, to do this in me, not because of me, but so that his glory would, de- would be displayed to my children. That because of my illness, remember it says here, this is an illness that does not lead to death. That by the way I suffer, by, by, by seeing God's grace in me, my children, my family would see Christ in me and would turn and trust in him which they have. Which is an amazing thing, amazing thing. Well, November last year, um, Deborah took another turn for the worse, where her liver stopped functioning. Um, there was calcium buildup, and tumors had spread to her brain. And talking to her the other day, she really, everyone thought death was imminent. Kids, family, friends called in. And, and under those circumstances, Deborah and Bill made a decision to, to re-engage chemo, just to say, God, our, my life is in your hands, but if, if, if for some reason you want to extend my life just a little bit, for me to display your glory, to be a testimony to minister, then do that or just take me home. My life is in, in your hands. So I'll talk to Deborah this week. Of course, cancer has once again receded. Liver functioning. Feeling pretty good. And praising God for another season of life that he's given her. But let me tell you the most encouraging thing she said. Because it fits right in with this passage. She said, you know, I know I will eventually die from this. Now, I think at that moment, 
she recognized something very profound. That this sickness is not about healing in this life. This is a sickness that does not lead to death because it is for the glory of God. And that as long as God gives her life and breath, Deborah will be a pointer to the only hope we have, that Jesus is her resurrection and life. Is he yours? Is he yours? You see, Lazarus' story, whether you know it or not, is is our story. It's your story. Dead men walking physically, but spiritually as well. Given life by the Son of God, who, who said the words, Lazarus, rise. Lazarus, wake up. Not just physically, but spiritually. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And he speaks the same to you today. Do you know this Jesus? Is he your resurrection in life? Because one of the things I think is really cool about coming to the table each and every week is that we come as people of the resurrection. We come and say, our bodies are wasting away, but inwardly we are being renewed day by day. That, that Jesus, because we believe in him, we will never die. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Jesus says, come to me. I am the resurrection and the life. I ask you to bow your heads, and as you do so, our leaders are going to come forward and prepare to serve the elements at the table. I just want you to to think on this passage and think upon the truths that God has pressed upon your heart. And consider the resurrection that's found only in Jesus Christ.